Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's been a while since I have done a standalone podcast. There's just been a lot of things going on in the life of our church as far as ministry-related activities. I think I mentioned on a few podcasts back that I'm in the process of writing a book. So that's in the process of being copy-edited uh, with the publisher and making some changes and uh, um, all of that good stuff. And so um, I wanted to spend some time addressing um, an issue that we often talk about on this podcast, and that is the issue of Reformed theology and uh, God's sovereignty, free will, all of those things that, that seem to be on the front burner these days in discussions. And I spent some time over the past few weeks uh, reading the book Determined to Believe, question mark, The Sovereignty of God, Freedom, Faith, and Human Responsibility by John Lennox. Determined to Believe. Um, he is a mathematician at the University of Oxford. He is a Christian apologist from England. He engages in a lot of debates and discussions, best, basically a lot of times with, with atheists and trying to promote a Christian worldview. And so he has written a book that basically argues against what we would call as Reformed theology or an understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He calls it divine determinism. Determinism, we would probably call it compatibilism. Whatever you want to call it, he has written a book arguing against Reformed theology. Now, at the onset, I would say the book is charitable. Um, he, the, the book is, uh, is, is fairly well written. Uh, the only problems I have with the book is that uh, he's definitely not a biblical scholar. Uh, he definitely is not an exegete. Um, and so that reflects in a lot of his treatment of biblical texts. And so what I'm going to do is um, I'm just going to talk about the book and talk about some of the issues. And basically he starts the book out with some philosophical objections to divine determinism. And then the second half of the book, he deals with key texts. Um, and so he does some exegesis and tries to give his interpretation of what these biblical texts mean. And so what I want to do is I just want to give you some of his arguments against divine determinism, compatibilism, and I'm going to give you some direct, direct quotes from uh, some of the, um, the things that he said. I'll give you page numbers. This book, Determined to Believe, um, is published by Zondervan. Um, it's a fairly new book. Let me look at the copyright here and see when it came out. 2017, so it's only a couple years old. So here are some of his, his main arguments. Uh, and these are in no particular order uh, of importance. They're really the way he addresses them um, in his book. And so number one, uh, he would argue that in order for humans to choose good or evil, they must, by necessity, possess libertarian free will to do so. So he is a proponent of libertarian free will. In other words, humans have the capacity to choose between two competing options. They can overcome their desire, their nature, their environment to make those choices, their self-determining choices. Uh, humans must have libertarian free will if they are going to be uh, moral agents being able to choose good and evil. That's one of his arguments. 
Another argument, number two, is without libertarian free will, there is no real capacity to truly love. You really can't truly love God unless you have libertarian free will. Number three, God's sovereignty is not defined as having a meticulous decree whereby all things come to pass because of God's ordained decree, but he defines sovereignty as God rules his creatures by giving them genuine libertarian free will. Uh, Let me give you a quote on page 34. Basically, what he says is that without libertarian free will, and if, determin- if the divine determinism is true, then basically, okay, I'm sorry, it's on page 46. He says this, Of course, the word sovereignty could be understood to mean absolute control in every detail of life, and as we shall see, is taken to mean that by some theists. But this smacks of despotism and totalitarian dictatorship, rather than speaking of a God who makes a universe in which love can not only exist, but a supremely characteristic of God himself. So, a view of God's sovereignty whereby he decrees all things that come to pass makes God a totalitarian dictator. He also says this. It's a fourth argument. He says determinism turns people off to God and is counterproductive to doing apologetics and evangelism. So basically, if you believed in Reformed theology, or you believe in unconditional election, or you believe in a a sovereign decree of God, that is not attractive to an atheist, or to a lost person, or to a skeptic. And so it's really a barrier in doing apologetics and evangelism uh, to bring those characteristics up about God, because it is unpalatable to the, the unsaved person. He also argues, there's a fifth argument here, God must not be good and loving if he fixes human destinies like a master chess player or puppeteer. Uh, let Let me read to you. This is on page 58. How is it possible for us to be moral beings capable of performing morally significant acts if our behavior is completely predetermined by an absolute divine predestination? How can anyone believe that God is good or that he's a God of love if he fixes human destiny like a master chess player, a puppeteer, irrespective of the response of the humans involved. So if you believe in a divine decree by God, if you believe in unconditional election, if you believe God ordains the eternal destinies of all people based upon his sovereign will, then basically... That makes God not good. It makes God not loving. He's just a grand puppeteer in the sky, and we are all automatons uh, with no actual volitional choices at all. Now, one of the most jarring quotes from the book is on page 61. He says this, quote, 
It is entirely another thing to go way beyond that and to believe that all that happens, including evil, is meticulously planned and its occurrence made certain by God, independent of any other considerations. And here's where um, the jarring quote. It is hard to imagine that anyone could believe that such extreme deterministic ideas are even remotely Christian. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, all of the major Protestant confessions of faith, if you believe what historic Protestants have believed, uh, I mean, really, the, the church at large over all these years, uh, you, you're not even remotely Christian in your understanding. Now, that's a pretty uh, jarring quote. Now, one of the things that was frustrating about this book is either his misunderstanding or his mischaracterization of determinism. And, and over and over again, he keeps making this error. And I'll read it on page 64. Um, he says, A further attempt to avoid the issue is to say that everything, including evil, is directly caused by God for the greater good. Uh, he, he, he keeps talking about how God directly causes evil. Uh, that is not the Reformed view. As a matter of fact, our confessions argue against that. Yes, God sovereignly ordains all things that come to pass, but there are secondary causes and secondary agencies, and he never addresses that in the book. He basically throws the mischaracterization out there that if you believe in divine determinism, you automatically believe that God directly causes evil all the time. We don't believe that. We don't believe God is the direct cause. We believe he has a sovereign decree, but often the causation of things are secondary causes. And so uh, that was a frustrating thing in his book that he kept repeating over and over again, uh, mischaracterizing uh, the the reform view. Uh, Another thing that he would talk about, another argument, um, and this is all throughout the, the book, is that libertarian free will is an implicit presumption from the Bible. Why would God command us to repent and believe unless we have the capacity to do so? So therefore, because ought means can, or should means ability, therefore libertarian free will is an assumed, um, a presumed or an implied reality based upon those commands. Another thing that was pretty jarring is on page 102, he said this, Quote, they will say, how can you believe in a God who fixed your eternal destination before you were born, quite independently of what you do? If he chose to save you, he will give you the gift of faith so that you can believe and be saved. If he decided to condemn you, you will be condemned. There's nothing you can do about it. Surely this conflicts with any acceptable concept of morality and fairness and makes God out to be neither loving nor good and therefore unworthy of our respect, let alone our Worship. So if you believe in unconditional election, then basically you don't worship a God that's even worthy to be worshipped because basically he's not fair and he's not moral in doing that. So basically what he said, and it's pretty explicit, is that if you hold to Reformed theology... You believe in an immoral God, uh, 
You believe in a God that is not worthy to be worshipped, and what you believe can barely be recognized as Christian. And so the, the fundamental argument throughout his entire book is basically um, divine determinism makes God immoral. It's immoral for God to do that. And so those are some of his philosophical objections to compatibilism or divine determinism. Now, he begins to um, go into particular passages um, that teach predestination, that teach um, a divine decree, that, that teach these things. And he, and he um, does, I'm just going to be very honest, he does a very poor job of exegesis of these passages. Um, so let's just go with these in the order, somewhat of the order that he addresses these in the book. And so obviously he goes straight to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So let's read that. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What he does when he addresses Ephesians chapter 1 is he takes the corporate view of election. Uh, and I've done some podcasts on that in the past, so let me just summarize uh, what the corporate view of election is. The corporate view of election basically says that God... It basically says that God ordained a plan of salvation. Christ is the elect one. God ordained that there would be an elect group called the church. And so in eternity past, God chose for there to be believers. God chose for there to be a group called the elect. Then in time, when you use your libertarian free will to actually believe in Jesus... Then you're marked in him, and that's when you become one of the elect. You weren't individually chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. There was just this idea in God's mind that there would be a saved group, a saved class, a corporate group. You get into that group by using your free will in time when the gospel comes to you. And his argument is that when Paul talks about choosing us before the foundation of the world, it's not choosing us to be saved. Now, granted, does Paul say he chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved? No, Paul does not use that language, but Paul is talking about blessings in Christ. To be holy and blameless, to be adopted, that, that is salvific language. Um, basically, what he does is he goes down to verses 13 and 14 uh, when it talks about how when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, uh, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He uses the NIV translation, you were marked in him, basically saying that when you choose Christ based upon your libertarian free will, then you're placed in him and you become one of the elect. Now let's just stop and think about some, some things related to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Um, the choice of particular individuals in Christ happens before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ. Um, he didn't choose Christ. He chose us in Christ. Now, the text does not say that Christ was chosen as the corporate head and then the church becomes a reality insofar as people believe in Jesus. 
Now, the context here also demands unconditional election. See, this is the issue. Regardless of whether you have the foreknowledge view of election or you have the corporate view of election, uh, they're both conditional views. You have to do something in order to become elect. In the Arminian scheme, God foresees through the corridors of time that you would trust in Jesus, and based upon what God foresees, he then ratifies your decision by electing you. In the corporate view of election, which is what many traditional Southern Baptists and what John Lennox and others believe, is that you still have to meet the condition before you become one of the elect. The condition is you have to personally trust in Christ for salvation. The text here teaches unconditional election because there are no demands or prerequisites both exegetically and logically in the text for God choosing and predestinating. The only condition or prerequisite in this entire long sentence that goes from verse 3 down to verse 14 is that of hearing and believing in order to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, these are human activities that take place in time. But they are a result of the election, not the cause of election. In other words, a person does not believe in order to become one of the elect. A sinner believes as a result of being one of the elect and then is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, the goal of election is to be holy and blameless. This is where John Lennox would say, you know, he's not talking about being elected or being chosen to be saved. He's talking about um, your sanctification. God has chosen you to be holy and blameless. Well, let's just think about something for a moment. It assumes that unbelievers are not saved before election, but takes into consideration their fallenness. So it is a salvific issue. If you're chosen to be holy and blameless, that assumes that you weren't holy and blameless, that you were fallen in Adam, and that you could not in any way make yourself holy and blameless. Now, I believe Paul here, when he talks about being holy and blameless, refers to a positional holiness that comes as a result of our justification, where we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't think he's talking about a progressive sanctification. I think he's talking about our positional holiness. And that comes as a result of justification, which is a result of you trusting in Christ. So this is all related to Christ or God choosing us to be saved, to be justified, to be positionally holy and blameless. Um, We're also predestinated to be adopted. Now, uh, they'll oftentimes say, well, that's something that will happen way off in the future. God's, God's determining your future, that one day you will be adopted. And that doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. It just means your future destiny, that you'll be adopted. But Paul also argues other places that when we come to faith in Christ, we are adopted. So there's a lot of things that are related to this passage of Scripture that he just doesn't really address. I was really kind of disappointed in just the cursory um, exegetical work that he did with Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 5. Probably the most egregious exegetical treatment of any passage of Scripture uh, that I saw in this book was Acts 13, 48. Um, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, the word of the Lord, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Now, let me read to you, I'm going to read to you a pretty long paragraph here, his exegetical conclusion. Quote, the Greek term translated appointed here is not one of the words in our earlier list. It is from a verb whose root means to cause someone to be in a state involving an order of arrangement and is used in military context to describe troops lining up or getting into formation. The use of the word in this context is understandable. The Jews did not want the gospel, and so the Gentiles lined up for it. The etymology of the word says nothing about how the lining up was done, but in the context it's clear that, that, that just as the Jews made the conscious decision to get out of line, similarly the Gentiles made an equally conscious decision to get into line. Once again, it's to be stressed that God took the initiative in all of this. He sent them the messengers who preached to them in the power of the Spirit. In that sense, God had worked on them and in them, but in the end, they were saved not because of some inscrutable fiat on God's part, but because they responded to God's initiative. They lined themselves up and believed and thereby received eternal life. They lined themselves, they got in line and therefore God rewarded them getting into line by granting them eternal life. Now, the grammar in this text and the syntax in this text is very, very important. What's the reason why they believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because they were already appointed. Now, does the Acts passage tell when they were appointed to believe? No, but we can take from the rest of Scripture that God appointed or God chose the elect before the foundation of the world. The word appointed is in the perfect tense, while the word believed is in the aorist. So grammatically, when a perfect tense verb is in a sentence with an aorist verb, the perfect tense verb stands as the cause or the source of why the aorist verb happens. So let me just break this down grammatically. The election comes before the believing. Being appointed comes before believing. You don't believe in order to become one of the elect. You, be, you, be, you, you believe because you were one of the elect. In other words, the text does not say that they were ordained to believe. That wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but that's not what the text says. The text says that they were ordained to eternal life. It was not that they were predisposed to believe or they lined themselves up or they got in line, but that God in eternity past had sovereignly ordained or predestined these to eternal life. And then in time when the gospel was preached to them, they believed as a result of their already being chosen to eternal life. In other words, faith is the fruit of election, not the other way around. It's not, I believed and, and was thus disposed or appointed to eternal life. Or I believed because I got in line and God rewarded me with eternal life. Instead, it was, I was first appointed to eternal life, and thus I believed. Now, the word appoint, I mean, yes, it could be in some lexicons mean to line up in military, but it means to designate, to appoint, to assign. It's the passive voice. 
Okay, these people didn't line themselves up. That's just grammatically not accurate the way he's interpreting that. It's in the passive voice, which means that God is the one that does the appointing. God appointed them. They were appointed. They didn't appoint themselves. They didn't line themselves up. They didn't dispose themselves. God sovereignly ordained or appointed them to eternal life. And thus, because of that, they believed. Um, scholar F.F. F. Bruce, who probably was one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century, refers to papyrus evidence that this word to appoint can also mean to inscribe or enroll, in which case would reference the book of life in, in Revelation 13.8 where, where, where the names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. This is what he writes, quote, We cannot agree with those who attempt to tone down the predestinarian note of this phrasing by rendering as, man, as many as were disposed to eternal life. The Greek participle for a point has been shown by papyrus evidence for this verb to mean to inscribe or enroll, the idea of being enrolled in the book of life. So when I got to the end of that chapter, when he was treating um, Acts 13.48 and he's treat, uh, teaching um, uh, Ephesians 1, uh, there, the chapter was, there was no meaningful exegesis at all with those key texts. It was, it was very, very weak and, and actually inaccurate in some areas. Now, he also deals with Ephesians 2. And here's the interesting thing. He deals with Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And he deals with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But he doesn't deal with the entire flow of, of text and how it relates together. He tries to downplay what it means to be dead in sin. And so let me read all of the passage so that we can get Paul's entire flow of thought. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." His common argument that you hear from a lot of people is that dead doesn't really mean dead, and dead basically means you're separated from God, but it doesn't mean that you're unable to come to faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're spiritually or morally dead in so much that you can't respond or you can't use your libertarian free will, and he goes on and explains why dead doesn't really mean dead. What he doesn't deal with is verses 4 through 7, which explain something very vital. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Doesn't even address the whole idea of God making us alive. He doesn't relate spiritual deadness to God having to make us alive by grace alone. And so when Paul gets down to verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We understand that not only is your salvation a gift, 
but your faith is a gift. Why is your faith a gift? Your faith is a gift because you were dead in sin and God had to make you spiritually alive. Now he defines faith as a gift and basically says God takes the initiative to provide salvation and God draws out our faith by his grace But ultimately, he says, we all have the capacity to trust. We're not totally morally and spiritually unable. We have the capacity to trust. The question is, will we take advantage of the capacity that God's given us? And I don't exactly know what he means by God draws out our faith by his grace. God draws out that faith. Well, then, does God draw out the faith of only some people? And others he doesn't? That sounds very awkward. It almost sounds like there's something that we contribute to our salvation that's inherently there, and God draws it out. Let me just read to you on page 165 what he says. He says, um, Free will is the gift of God that gives us the capacity to come to God with empty hands. Since we are finally to be judged on the basis of whether we believed or not, it shows that although we are dead in trespasses and sins, we still possess the capacity to accept or reject what God offers. This is a matter of basic morality. He keeps going back to the morality argument. He says, we're dead in sins and trespasses, but that doesn't mean that we're totally unable to come to Christ We still possess the capacity to do that. If we didn't possess the capacity to come to Christ, then basically God would be immoral. It's basically immoral for God to uh, call us to repent and believe if we don't inherently have the ability to repent and believe. And God can draw out our faith by His grace. Again, I do not exactly know what that means, that God draws out our faith with His grace. Grace. It's a very interesting um, way of, of phrasing uh, that. Let me see if I can actually find that quote here real quick. Okay, here's the first one. How can God, whose love and justice are impeccable, hold guilty those who were incapable of doing what he commanded them to do? So that's the the age-old question that Arminians and non-Reformed people always go back to. If God commands you to repent and believe, and you don't repent and believe because you can't repent and believe, then why would God hold you accountable or guilty for not being able to do what he's commanding you to do? Therefore, when God says you ought to do something, it's implied that you can do that. So ought means can. That's one of the key um, issues in his theology. Here's another um, key theology, key statement on his theology. God will do everything in his power to help us, but he cannot decide for us. He has the power, but makes it available to us only when we avail ourselves of it. I'm going to read that again. God will do everything in his power to help us, but he cannot decide for us. Now, that is not even Calvinism. Okay, 
Number one, God does not decide for us. We don't believe as Reformed Calvinists that God decides for us. We choose Christ. We come to Christ. We personally repent and believe. God doesn't believe for us. God doesn't make the decision for us to come to faith in Christ. The only reason that we did come to Christ is because God overcame sovereignly and irresistibly our deadness and depravity, granting us the effectual call, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to make us willing and able to come. So God will do everything in his power to help us, just to help us. He's going to help us. God helps those who help themselves. He doesn't say that. So God's not going to sovereignly regenerate you and bring you to life, and overcome your deadness, he's going to help you. He's going to do everything in his power to help you. He has the power. We're not denying God has the power. But he's only going to make that power available to you when you avail yourselves of it. So somehow you've got to avail yourselves of that power that God's doing everything he can to try to help you, but it's only going to become activated when you avail yourself to it by basically using your free will. Now, there's another interesting point of theology that he also talks about, which I found interesting when he starts talking about um, Adam and Eve. Um, On page 161, he says, the deterministic idea held by some that Adam's sin was caused by God's decree, and therefore Adam could not have done otherwise, is grotesque. Morality would thereby be emptied of all coherent meaning And the problem of evil would cease to exist because we could simply blame God for everything. I don't know if he's an open theist or not, but he's basically saying, if you believe that God ordained the fall, that is a grotesque thought that empties morality of all of its meaning. Everything goes back to morality in his view, or I guess his definition of morality. If God has a sovereign decree... If God foreordains all things that come to pass, then we must live in an an, an unfair, immoral universe where God's a monster, it's grotesque, and it's barely Christian. Now, the really, he spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John trying to prove from the Gospel of John, which I find interesting, uh, because to me, the Gospel of John has probably the most um, sovereign election human depravity, inability, a teaching of any of the Gospels. But he goes to the Gospel of John and spends a long time there uh, trying to prove libertarian free will and to deny um, determinism or compatibilism. And he spends a lot of time in John 6, which I find very interesting. So let's read John 6. We've spun a lot of time. If I, if I go back and think about all the podcasts that we've done over the past three or four years, I haven't done a, a calculation on this, but I can imagine that John 6 probably shows up a lot in the podcasts we've done because the teaching by Jesus is so clear. So let's just pick up. This is the um, bread of life discourse Uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's gone across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. They're chasing after him because they want to have their fill of food. And um, they think he's an awesome miracle worker. Then Jesus stands up and starts to rebuke them because they're coming to him for just a meal and not recognizing him as the bread of life come from heaven. And so let's pick up in John 6, 35. 
And we'll read John 6, 35 through 46. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. A very key point of understanding is verse 36. It sets the context for Jesus' description. Jesus is not necessarily inviting these people to come to him. He's making a commentary. He's giving an explanation as to why they're not coming to him. Verse 36, I said to you, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Okay, so that's a big issue. They have just seen Jesus perform an awesome miracle, feeding of the 5,000. They've seen it with their own eyes. They've seen him in the flesh perform it. They've eaten the actual bread. It is a bona fide miracle right in front of them from Christ. And yet Jesus says, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now that is, a, is an interesting question. Why in the world aren't they believing? It seems like after you've seen the miracle of Jesus of the feeding of the 5,000s, that would be a convincing enough proof for you to truly believe and come to Christ more than just wanting him as a miracle worker, more than just wanting the food that he gives. You would truly understand that he is the bread of life spiritually and you're to place your, your faith and trust in him. And so Jesus says, you don't believe. Now, here's the question. Why don't they believe? Well, there's many answers that people could give. The non-reformed, more Arminian answer would be, the reason they're not believing is because they have libertarian free will and they're choosing not to believe. They're just using their free will not to believe. They could come to Christ if they wanted to, but they're not coming to him because they don't want to. They have free will. Jesus doesn't address that at all. Jesus basically says the reason that they're not believing is because they're not elect. They haven't been given to him by the Father. They haven't been drawn by the Father. They can't come. They're spiritually and morally incapable of coming unless the Father draws them. God's got to draw them. God's got to choose them. God's got to work in them. And those whom God does that will be raised up on the last day. So it's the whole teaching of you've got unconditional election, you've got irresistible grace, you've got total inability, all taught by Jesus in a very compressed passage of Scripture. Okay, So how does John Lennox deal with this teaching of Jesus about being drawn and coming to Christ in, in John 6? So here we go. 
Quote, The key idea is that in order for someone to come to Christ, the Father must draw him. Once more, the emphasis is on God taking the initiative in salvation, but as before, no deterministic inference should be drawn since Jesus goes on to explain how such drawing is evidenced, listening to the Father and learning from him. They will all be taught by God. A more reasonable understanding of the situation is that on the one hand, no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. God always takes the initiative in salvation. But on the other hand, his drawing is accessible to all who are willing to listen learn, and trust. They can still be drawn to him if they are prepared to listen and learn. Do you hear the language he uses there? Now, obviously he wants to protect God's sovereignty. God takes the initiative. God provides. The drawing's accessible. God draws. But you have to be willing to listen and learn. You have to be prepared to listen and learn. And if you're prepared, you're willing, and, you, and you're listening and learning, and when the, when the message is presented, and if you've prepared yourself and you're listening and learning, then based upon your willingness to avail yourselves of learning, God will then draw you. That's exactly opposite of what the passage of Scripture says. Jesus goes to great pains to say, no one can come to me. Okay, so... You can't prepare yourself. You can't be willing to learn and listen and trust. You can't make yourself um, accessible to this drawing by, by disposing yourself in some way to be prepared to do that. Jesus in verse 44 says, no one can come to me. No one has the power to come to me. If you're going to come to Jesus, you have to be drawn. Okay, so what does it mean to be drawn? Does that mean that God drags us kicking and screaming against our will into, into heaven? No, that's, that's a characterization. Jesus gives a very interesting statement. He says, right after verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, he explains, he expands what it looks like to be drawn. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and has learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, so let's just let's look at the grammar. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, what did he say right before that? No one can come unless he's drawn. All that the Father gives me will come. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, so who comes to Jesus based upon John 6? Who comes in faith to Jesus? It's very simple. Those who were given to Jesus by the Father, those who were drawn by the Father, those who were taught by the Father. Okay, how does that happen? Well, what John Lennox would say, he said, it is open to anyone to respond. And if they do, Jesus says they will come to him and receive eternal life by believing in him. So, it's open to anyone that wants to come. If you want to learn from Jesus, if you want to learn from the Father, it's open. It's available. It's, you've got the libertarian free will to prepare yourselves. Just be, be spiritually attuned to what he's saying. Be willing to learn. Be, be willing to be drawn if you want to be drawn. And if you respond to the teaching of Jesus, then you'll come to him. Nowhere in that text does it say anything about 
being predisposed or preparing yourself or being available or availing yourself or taking advantage or any of these types of things. There's no inability addressed at all. How does a person hear from God? Okay, so what does this mean to hear from God, to be taught by God? So is it, if I'm willing to be taught by God, then therefore Christ will, or the Father will draw me to Jesus. Is that what Jesus, is that the order? Okay, John Lennox makes it sound like I have a willingness to want to be taught I have an attuning desire to want to receive this teaching. And if I prepare myself and if I take advantage of teaching, then Jesus will draw me because I've been attentive to his message. That's exactly opposite of what the text says. text says no one can come. You have to be drawn. Okay, what's the drawing look like? The drawing looks like you're being taught by the Father. And then you come. Back earlier in John 5, 37 through 40, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What's Jesus saying to these guys? Hey, listen, you guys may have a willingness to read the Bible. You may have a willingness to be taught by God, and you think you're being taught by God. And you're searching the scriptures because you want eternal life. But the reason that you're not coming to faith in me is because you don't have his word abiding in you. You're not given by the Father to me. You haven't been drawn. This whole being taught by the Father really ties back to the new covenant promise in Jeremiah where God says one day he's going to write his word in our hearts. So what does it mean to be taught by God? Does it mean, hey, I have this willingness when the gospel's presented to want to listen, and if I listen really well, and if I um, respond, and, and if I get myself prepared and I'm willing to listen, then God will draw me to himself. No, God has to do an internal work of grace in your heart to bring about the illuminating power of, of, the, of the word. I mean, it's an effectual call through the testimony of Christ in the scriptures where God works in the hearts and minds of those that he's given to Jesus to ensure that they will be drawn and come. Just drawing's not some mystical thing that happens just without any context to the teaching of God's word. It's always in conjunction to the preaching and teaching and the outward call of the gospel. The outward call goes out. The teaching goes out. Those who are elect, those who've been given to Jesus, are taught by God. They are internally given the effectual call. They're drawn by God. And then when they come, it thus shows that they were drawn and they were taught by God. It's very similar to what um, Jesus says about Peter. When Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Remember um, at Caesarea Philippi, who do all these people say I am? Some say you're a prophet, you're, you know, you know, you're Jeremiah, you're John the Baptist. And who do you say I am? Um, and Peter says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. 
Peter was taught by the Father through the effectual internal work of the Holy Spirit so that he would be drawn and come to Christ. Here's what he says on page 184. The initiative was God's. His was the drawing voice, and theirs was the responsibility to listen to him. So they always want to protect God's sovereignty, God's initiative, God's grace, but it's always like this halfway grace. God does everything in his power to help. God takes the initiative to provide you with the information. God will draw you, but it's always up to you to use your libertarian free will to cooperate with that. You got to be willing to be taught by God. You got to be willing to come. You've got to use your free will to do that. The responsibility is all back on you. And obviously, Jesus is not teaching that in John chapter 6. Now, here's what I find the most disappointing in this entire book. Okay? This is a 300 and about 350 page, even longer than that. Let's look here. It's about a 360 page book. What is lacking in the book? What's the title of the book? Determined to Believe the Sovereignty of God, Freedom, Faith, and Human Responsibility. It is a polemic against compatibilism, against determinism. For a book that argues against determinism, he does not even address any of the key texts in the Bible that teach it. And I double-checked because I went through and read it, and then I went back through the, the Scripture index at the back of the book to make sure I was correct. There, Let me give you some key passages of Scripture he doesn't even touch. He doesn't even address. He doesn't even deal with. He doesn't even bring up that teach this. So he's arguing against what he doesn't believe in and yet does not bring up any of the texts that teach it and interact with them and say why these texts don't teach what he's arguing against. For example, Genesis 50, 20, the famous passage of scripture with Joseph and his brothers. You know the story. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They perpetrated wickedness against him. They left him for dead. They did evil. And at the end of the story, after their dad, Jacob, is dead, the brothers are afraid that maybe Joseph would retaliate against them because he's the prime minister. And so Joseph calls them in, and Joseph makes this very theological statement about God's sovereignty in the whole matter. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about it that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God had a sovereign plan to bring about the salvation of many people. God's sovereign plan was for Joseph to be sold into slavery. Did God directly cause that? No, the brothers did that. Did the brothers act freely out of their own nature to do what was wicked? Yes. Are the brothers held accountable for what they did? Yes. Did the brothers do exactly what God wanted them to do? Yes. Did God hold a gun to their head saying, you will do this? No. God acted freely. The brothers acted freely. But at the end of the day, the brothers did exactly what God ordained for them to do. That's compatibilism. That's divine determinism. 
He doesn't address that passage of scripture at all. He doesn't address Isaiah 10 with the Assyrians, where God basically says, I'm raising up the Assyrians to go raid against the Israelites. And so God um, basically says, I'm, I'm ordaining you to go do this. The king pridefully does out of his own nature what kings do. They raid and pillage, and he gets all prideful and goes and carries out what God ordained them to do. And then God turns around and punishes them for doing what he ordained them to do. Now, according to John Lennox, he would have to say that's immoral. That is grotesque. So he doesn't address that passage of Scripture because it teaches exactly opposite of what he's argued. He's basically said, if God ordains all things that come to pass, and people do what God ordains that comes to pass, and those people are held accountable for that, or they're punished for that, then that is immoral. Why Isaiah chapter 10 teaches that with the Assyrians? What about another famous passage of Scripture? Isaiah 46, 9-11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. One of the strongest statements in the book of Isaiah about God's sovereign, meticulous decree to accomplish all things. Doesn't touch it. Doesn't address it. Doesn't try to give an exposition, an exegetical, even even to dance around it. Doesn't Doesn't even bring it up. Doesn't bring up Job at all. I mean, Job is a case study in divine determinism. God had determined these things to happen to Job by using a secondary cause of Satan and the Sabaeans and wind and and all these things to bring about an accomplished end. Doesn't even deal with Job. What I find most fascinating is that he does not even address Romans chapter 8, 6 through 8. Now he he deals with Ephesians chapter 2 and says dead doesn't really mean dead. And then he deals with John 6.44 and doesn't really explain how no one can come. Dances around that scripture. It's very clearly taught. But in a whole book against divine determinism, he doesn't address John, I mean, he doesn't address Romans 8, 6 through 8. What is Romans 8, 6 through 8? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've talked about this passage many times in our podcast. There's an inability there. If you're in the flesh, if you're unregenerate, if you are spiritually dead, you cannot submit to God's law and you cannot please God. In other words, what pleases God? To repent and believe. What pleases God? To come to faith in Christ. You cannot do it. Not that you will not, or you may not, or you don't want to come, which would be true. You cannot. doesn't even address that passage of Scripture at all in his book. Now, he does address Judas briefly. And he does address the passages in Acts that talk about 
the predestinating of, of the cross. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. I mean, he does a whole section on the words foreordained and foreknowledge and predestined and, and gives the passages of Scripture where those words show up, but he doesn't even deal with the passages. He just kind of shows that those words are in the Bible. But here you have the cross being the definite plan of God, the meticulous decree of God, and then you have people that he's addressing there at Pentecost that actually secondarily caused it, crucified Jesus. Acts 4, 27, 28, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, it's very, very interesting that he does address these passages of Scripture. And he almost sounds, he's pretty close to sounding like a compatibilist. He's pretty close to sounding like a Reformed theologian. Uh, let me read to you what he says here. On page 108, in, in addressing that passage, if God's foreknowledge, or is God's foreknowledge causative? I.e., does the fact that God knows that something will happen cause it to happen? and therefore relieve any participant from responsibility. Then he says on page 109, it could be, for instance, that God knew beforehand that I would trust Christ simply because he sees it in an eternal perspective so that the issue of causation does not even arise. Okay, what he, what he does is basically he says, according to Judas and to Acts, he argues that he, he flat out says, God sovereignly predestined both the betrayal and the cross of Judas. More like, amen, you sound just like a, a Reformed theologian. And he says, those who put Jesus to death were morally responsible and held accountable. Okay, that's compatibilism. He, he argues for that. It's a Reformed view. But then in his explanation of how God did, does this, basically he argues from a passive foreknowledge view. God is outside of time and basically observes what's going to happen. Notice what he says there. It could be that God knew beforehand that I would trust Christ simply because he sees it in an eternal perspective so that the issue of causation doesn't even arise. So God foresaw by passively taking in knowledge that the cross was going to happen and therefore knew it was going to happen. So it was his foreknowledge that the cross was going to happen. And those people, he knew were going to do it. But there's no causation there. There's no sovereign decree. And so there are a lot of weaknesses in this book. For, I was expecting, because I heard a lot about this book, and you got to read this book. It's, it's one of the best defenses uh, for traditional Southern Baptist view against Reformed theology, and um, this is just a great, a great treatment of, um, against determinism, and, and I was sorely disappointed. Number one, there's a lot of mischaracterizations and misunderstanding of Reformed theology. There's really bad exegesis, uh, and there's a lot of uh, flaws in argumentation uh, and basically, his bottom line, and I've said it before, is basically, if you could, if you could summarize the book in one sentence, it would be, uh, divine determinism is immoral. It makes God a grotesque, um, immoral monster. And so therefore, it cannot be true. And thus, 
libertarian free will, which is the opposite of divine determinism, is a better option because at least God is moral, God is loving, God is good, and we just implicitly must have libertarian free will because um, it's just assumed to be true um, in the Bible. So I would encourage any Reformed theologian to actually read this book. Um, probably one of the, the newer books that's, that's somewhat of a scholarly, I use that word loosely, uh, attempt to address this issue. It's good to interact with the other side. It's good to hear what their argumentations are. I didn't even deal with this whole treatment of Romans chapter 9, but if you know anything about Leighton Flowers' view of Romans chapter 9, uh, basically John Lennox is right in lockstep with where he is. And um, so I think a lot of um, traditional Southern Baptists, non-Calvinists, um, those of them more in the Arminian camp are really drawn to John Lennox. And I think that he probably does a lot of good in the area of apologetics with atheists. Um, but when it comes to these issues... I don't think he's done a very good job. And so I know this has been kind of a cursory glance at more of a book review uh, and an, inter an interaction with um, John Lennox's book, but I encourage you to go read it. Um, and I do appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, I, I know that there's been a lot of times where there's lulls and, and, and lapses in these uh, podcasts, and you know, you're probably listening to the, the Wednesday night teachings on Revelation right now, and Sunday mornings we're going through Exodus, and I will try to hopefully get some more of these standalone podcasts in. But I do appreciate you listening. Um, I do appreciate you interacting with me. You can go to seancole.net to find all of my contact information. You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can email me. Uh, you can go to iTunes and give us a positive review and rating. Uh, you can share us with others on your social media platforms to get the word out. We'd love to be a benefit to you. Uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to minister uh, the word of the Lord to you. And so until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Jesus.